It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 250, Pompey the Great and the Decline of the Hasmonean Kingdom. The study of antiquity is properly accounted worthless, except as it may be made living drama or to illuminate our contemporary life. The rise of Rome from a crossroads town to world mastery, its achievement of two centuries of security and peace from Crimea to Gibraltar and from the Euphrates to Hadrian's Wall, its spread of classic civilization of the Mediterranean and Western European world, its struggle to preserve its ordered realm from a surrounding sea of barbarism, its long, slow crumbling and final catastrophic collapse into darkness and chaos. This is surely the greatest drama ever played by man, unless it be that other drama, which began when Caesar and Christ stood face to face in Pilate's court and continued until a handful of hunted Christians from grown by time and patience and through persecution and terror to be the first the aliens, then the masters, and alas, the heirs of the greatest empire in human history. Will Durant, the foreword to Caesar and Christ. In this episode, we layer in the story of Julius Caesar, Pompey the Great, and the near end of the Hasmonean Kingdom. We start with the zenith and decline of the Hasmonean Kingdom. Following their true independence from the Seleucids in 142 BC, king after king expanded the territories of Judah. One of the conquests was the taking of Idumea, south of Jerusalem. The taking of this territory and peoples that were not Jewish is described in the following way according to Josephus. The Idumeans were subdued and allowed to permit staying in the country if they be circumcised and make use of the Jewish laws. There would be some notable Idumeans allowed to stay in the Jewish state um, and even participate in the government. Um, hardliners would not care for them, uh, but they would still make their way into the government, especially a particular individual, which we'll cover later. Next, Samaria is attacked, its temple destroyed, and the people subjugated. These are the old non-worshippers of God from the Assyrian assimilation. Samaria will play a huge part in the story of Jesus later on. The Galilee region is seized, and the Hasmonean kings start to take on the triple title of king, general, and high priest. This is where everything seems to start to crumble, and the Jewish state of the Hasmoneans starts to look like the Seleucids before them. As high priest, the king... This means only the king was allowed into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. The king assumed this place, maybe at first out of an honest, holy perspective, but then they started to think of themselves as their own god. And that's my take, considering the pride and greed and arrogance and vice and ruthlessness that will follow. What happens is the Hasmoneans just decline, decline, and then they just nosedive. Oh, what heights, Israel, you have fallen. 
When John Harakinus dies in 104 BC, he leaves a reign to his wife. Yet his son, Arabalus, stages a coup and puts his mother in jail where she starves to death. Yeah, that's what she does. His own mother. Then he imprisons three of his brothers and kills a fourth. Then he surprisingly dies from natural causes. Then one of the jailed brothers, Alexander Janus, comes to the throne and he kills off another brother. Alexander ends up becoming quite a Hellenizer. He's quite the opposite of those who came before him. And the Pharisees rise up in revolt, and he kills 6,000 protesters in one event. A rebellion breaks out, and it lasts over nine years. And at one point, he captures hundreds of Pharisees. He has them crucified near the palace during an open-air banquet where they serve food for all of the royal court. He eventually dies at 76 B.C., his long-suffering wife, Salome, takes over the throne. And this is one of the few times there's actually like a, a queen over the government um, in Israel or Judah, in, in Jerusalem at this time. To avoid strife, she welcomes the Pharisees into positions of power, and every historian speaks of a great peace during her reign, where the land blossoms again and again, and where crop rotations and allotments are off the chart. Now we shift our story back to Rome. Sola has died, and Rome starts to find its footing again as a republic after purges of violence in the streets. One of Sola's generals is quite a young man by the name of Pompey. He was a ruthless general and quite competent. The Senate urged him to fight off some rebellions and then proceeded to Spain to remove another threat. A defected Roman general named Suetonius had made Hispania, or modern Spain, his own virtual private kingdom. Suetonius was one of the soldiers who served under Marius years ago. And Pompey is bested by Suetonius multiple times, but he eventually overwhelms him and in the process takes all of Spain, or modern Spain, for Rome. He returns to Rome to celebrate a triumph. He returns to Rome to celebrate a triumph, but the triumph is delayed by the famous slave revolt by Spartacus. So basically a triumph is where uh, the conquering hero comes back to, the, to Rome and he distributes and shows off all the wealth that they've accumulated or taken. Uh, they'll even drag along captured generals, even kings. Um, often they'll even kill them in front of the public uh, to show their great power. Um, and these guys are sometimes even worshipped as a god. And um, this is like the supreme ego trip for every general. Crassus is a dubious businessman. Some accounts have him forming the first fire brigade in Rome. The stories go that he would put out the fires of someone's house if they paid him. His fire brigades would continue in this fashion until he became extremely rich. Some even suggested he lit the fires himself. And his business tradings led him far and wide, and now he has his heart set on politics. He was reputed to be the most wealthy man in all the Roman Republic. And now he wants to be consul, and fighting as a general is a good way to get there. He leads the army against Spartacus, and he asks for help from Pompey. And Pompey is on the way just as Crassus takes out the last vestiges of the slave army. Yet Pompey gets some credit as he slaughters thousands of fleeing slaves. In the year 70 BC, Pompey would celebrate his second triumph in Rome at the age of 35, and he would co-rule with Crassus as consul. And at first they got along, but later they really didn't. Now we retract a few years and cover the other player in this age. His name's Julius Caesar. 
Caesar would flee Rome in the time of Sulla, um, and you heard the account in the last episode uh, where Sulla actually spared his life. Julius Caesar would fight in some campaigns in the east. He would hide away in Greece and come back and get captured by pirates on his way home after the death of Sulla. And when Caesar is captured by the pirates, we get an early taste of his personality in the account of the pirates. The pirates hold him prisoner, and he holds a superiority you know, attitude towards the whole thing. They demand 20 talents of silver, but he insists that the, his people pay him 50. After the ransom is paid, Caesar raises a fleet, pursues them, captures the pirates. He had them crucified on his own authority, as he had promised while in captivity. And as a sign of his leniency, he first had their throats cut. And you can imagine when he turns to Rome, this is almost like his campaign slogan that um, he'll see things through. Um, he is ruthless for Rome. Um, he'll see through combat, through to the finish. Um, he, he's an excellent marketer and an excellent speaker. Um, one account has that he is the second best speaker in all of Rome, and he garnishes the attention of the people. He returns to Rome and is elected military tribune. Then he gets elected quaestor for the year of 69 BC. He rises in the political ranks, and he ends up in um, Hispania, or modern Spain, um, in the summer of 69 BC. And here's another one of those stories that kind of is defining in the, the story of Julius Caesar. While he's there, he encounters a statue of Alexander the Great, and he stares up at the statue, and he weeps. He just cries. He looks at him, and he... And he and he ponders, and who knows where we get the account exactly. I think he recounts it. Uh, but, he, but he weeps at this statue because he says, at the same age, what have I achieved in my life? And he says, at the same age of 30, you know, in the 30s, Alexander had nearly conquered the world. All, was he, all, he, all, all Julius Caesar was was a quaestor in the Roman Republic. What's that? And I feel like this is a turning point in Julius Caesar's life. I picture him bowing his knees to ruthless ambition at this point. Absolute ruthless ambition is now his goal. He wants to be an Alexander. His goal, to, his goal is to be more famous than Alexander the Great. As young Pompey co-rules with Crassus, the businessman, we have a Julius Caesar swearing his allegiance to ruthless ambition with the goal of becoming more famous than even Alexander the Great. Meanwhile, back in Judah, Queen Salome dies in Jerusalem and things return to normal. Violent rebellions and striving for power. Her sons, Arachanus II and Aristobulus II, fight it out and the country is plunged into a civil war again. Somehow the general of Arachanus' armies is an Idumean named Herod Antipater and he is striving to keep his power. Aristipolis deposes Heraconus, and then Herod persuades Heraconus to contend for the throne. He advises him to escape to Eratos III, the king of the Arabian Nabataean kingdom. Heraconus promises Eratos that if he restores him to the throne, he will give him back twelve cities his father had taken from him. Eratos besieges Eratopolis in the temple of Jerusalem for eight months. So prior to this, war breaks out again around modern Turkey. The Mithridaic 
war continues. This is part three, between Rome and Pontus. Pompey is sent east to win the campaign, and by 67 BC, after a war with Mediterranean pirates, Pompey is called to take command of the war against Pontus. Pompey does a very ruthless thing. He makes friends with the king of Parthia and prevents them from joining forces with Mithridates. Instead, the Parthians invade the rear of the kingdom of Pontus. An extensive campaign follows where Pompey defeats Mithridates. Next, Pompey moves south to Antioch. And one of the things he does on the way is he makes a city called Tarsus, one of the capital cities in the region. And later it will be considered a free city, and anyone born in it will naturally have Roman citizenship, a very valuable commodity in those days. More to follow on the city of Tarsus. Much more. In Pompey's march south, he racked up huge sums of wealth until he arrives close to the Judean border. He sides with Aristobulus because he was rich, and he was easier to expel the Nabataeans, who were not very warlike, than to capture Jerusalem. He ordered Eratos to leave, and said if he did not leave, they'd become an enemy of Rome. Eratos withdraws. Instead of complying with the Romans, Aristobulus is stiff-headed against Pompey. Pompey tricks him and captures him. His followers close upon Jerusalem and prepare for another siege. This time, the Romans are besieging Jerusalem and not the Nabataeans. What is left of Aristobulus's forces prepare for a siege, but part of the inhabitants open the gates, and the Temple Mount becomes the focus of the siege. The Romans take advantage of the Sabbath and build a ramp, and siege engines and battering rams show up. The next day, the wall of the temple is broken through, and the soldiers go on a rampage. According to Josephus, 12,000 Jews fall. Josephus writes, No small enormities were committed about the temple itself, which in former ages had become inaccessible and seen by none. For Pompey went into it, and not a few of those who were with them also, and saw all that which was unlawful for any other man to see but for the high priest. They were in that temple, the golden table, the holy candlestick, the pouring vessels, and a great quantity of spices, and besides that were much the treasures, two thousand talents of sacred money. Yet did Pompey touch nothing of all of this, on account of his regard for the religion. And in this point also he acted in a manner that was worthy of his virtue. The next day he ordered the men in charge of the temple to purify it, and to bring offerings to God as Jewish law required. Heraconus was removed as king, but still given the place of high priest only. Per Josephus, Pompey restored Heraconus to the high priesthood, both because he had been useful to him in other respects, and because he hindered the Jews in the country from giving Eratobulus's supporters any assistance in the war against him. Pompey returns to Rome and celebrates one of the greatest triumphs in all of Roman history. Fears existed that he would take over the government, but he didn't. He was feared by a very staunch old Republican stalwart government apparatus that was rising. Plutarch wrote that it surpassed all the previous triumphs. It took place over an unprecedented two days, and the amount of income that brought into Rome increased the state income by 70% in that year. And the amount of bullion deposited into Rome was absurd. Let's just say the wealth reserves of the nations now reside in one city, Rome. And as for Pompey, it was speculated that his wealth would even succeeded Crassus at this stage. We conclude this episode with a look ahead. 
It's pretty unreal to consider this Pompey took Spain, modern Turkey, Syria, and Israel off of Rome. His expansion in territory for Roman history is quite remarkable. What was that quote? Sulla did it. Why can't I? But in solid Republican Roman fashion, Pompey dismissed his unbelievably rich army and returned to Roman society. Rome, with its new borders, with the exception of Egypt, can truly call the Mediterranean their Mars Nostrum, R.C. Across the waters and fleeing from his debt, Julius Caesar was taming some Iberian tribes and consolidating Roman possessions in Hispania when Pompey returns. Soon, he'll return to Rome and he'll want his own triumph. And he'll demand one like Pompey for his campaigns. But he will find a resolve in a very solid Republican staunch old-timers of the Republic called Cicero and Cato. One's the likes of powerful men like Crassus and Pompey despise. In this next episode, we cover the first triumvirate and how three powerful men forge a political alliance to crush the power of the Republic and control the government of Rome for their own political means and the rise of Julius Caesar as proconsul, the Parthian invasion of Judah, and the rise of a particular man named Herod. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com. Share the Facebook page if you want to chat. Email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.